Hi, Sue Ann here. I was raised not to interrupt elders. So I gotta tell you, there isn't a whole lot of back and forth conversation with our guest today on Traverse Talks. Chris Matthews. You may know him from the political talk show Hardball with Chris Matthews. The man has a lot to say because of his depth of knowledge, though he balked a wee at the word elder. His latest book is This Country, My Life in Politics and History. Matthews was a speechwriter with the Carter administration and later worked as chief of staff to Speaker of the House of Representatives Tip O'Neill. When are you going to really retire, Mr. Matthews? I, I think a lot of guys my age are women too. Uh, go into golf, and then they become fanatical about it. Well, I'm not going to do that. You don't want to do that? I think tennis is more my speed. Amazing. And uh, I like to read a lot. I'm a nonfiction reader. I can't get into fiction. I can't get into historic fiction because I never know what's true or not. But I love, I'm just. I'm working on the next book. I did Jack Kennedy. I did uh, Kennedy and Nixon, their friendship and rivalry. I did Bobby Kennedy. And now I'm doing Ted Kennedy for Simon & Schuster, finishing the hat trick there. Because he had a long career, unlike his brothers. And what I find interesting about him is he kept trying for the presidency. Yeah. He ran against Jimmy Carter. Uh, he resisted. They did not like Nixon in the White House. Why didn't he ever win? Why didn't the people ever say yes? Chabaquiddick, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think that's what stopped him. And I think he, uh, uh, and the Iranian hostage crisis of 1979 blew him out of the water. The American people rallied around Carter. And, um, hmm. But he did. Teddy, I just realized he wanted to run in 84 again. So... Uh, there's something that he was, I think, complicated. That's why I make uh-huh. it. Did he really want to run for president? Or did he think he had to because of his brothers, to, to prove to himself to his father? A friend of mine who's been who worked with him for years said, "I said, what made him get up at seven o'clock in the morning every day and go to work? I mean, he's out at night. His social life was somewhat uh, notorious. Uh, his brother." told his friend Charlie Bartlett, this is Jack Kennedy, said, Teddy would rather be chasing women in the south of France. That's what he'd like to be doing. But he wasn't. So why was he, what drove him to become one of the great senators of all time? Why did he work so hard? And somebody said to prove himself to his father. That is so much effing motivation. Yeah. What's well, the father in your head? Your father in your head. For women, it may be a little different. But it's the mother in mine. Yeah. And, and that's who you want to prove yourself to. Why do we do that? Because we're brought up that way. <laughs> because we want to we love our parents and we love them longer. The older you get, you think more and more about their sacrifices for you. And I was a little selfish not to think about my parents and how hard they worked. And uh, with five boys, I don't think my dad ever stopped on the way home from work at night and bought a Coke. I don't think he ever spent a dime for himself. He would work all week and then Friday night go out to bowling with his Knights of Columbus buddies. And then he'd play cards till two in the morning. And then he'd get up and play golf all day Saturday with his best friend, Gene Shields. And his idea was to work really hard, play really hard as a faithful husband, but go out, hang out with your buddies, and somehow get to church on Sunday at eight in the morning. How to go to the early church? That's that was a, a big that's thing. Catholic. It, it had to be early Not church. Not seven thirty. Yeah. Then see if you go later, you know, nightclub people. You know, <laughs> they, they don't get it. You're supposed to go early in the morning. So they'd come back with the donuts yes. and tell us you better get to church. I love it. It was pretty traditional. Joe Biden, I think, grew up like me. Really? I think he had a pretty traditional Catholic middle class existence. Yeah. Well, what, your motivation. How do, you have such a long career in politics, speech writing. For six years and fighting with Reagan, I was Jimmy Carter's speech writer on Air Force One. I mean, and I got the job in San Francisco with the newspapers out there, and I was able to be at 
Berlin when the wall came down. I didn't even ask permission from my editor. I just, you just went. went? Well, I, I just went because I knew if I asked permission, he'd say, no, we'll give it to somebody else. I said, no, no, I'm going. You, you can yell at me later. This is the biggest news event of my life. I'm going to be in Berlin. That is he incredible. He did say, next time ask me. I said, sure, sure I will. <laughs> Next time they'll ring you down the end of the Cold War, I'll tell you about it. So did you file that story and they just got it? They're like, what the hell? I'm standing in the rain at Brandenburg Gate on a Wednesday. The wall had started to open up that weekend before. And I'm interviewing people like on Hardball. I'm interviewing people in the rain. And I had limited German from school. I had four years of it. But I could ask some questions. And I go, was das Freiheit? What's freedom mean to you? And I kept interviewing people. What What's freedom mean to you? And they were talking very practically like the nurse I talked to said, well, it means we'll have more nurses on the floor because they'll stop leaving for the West because everybody was leaving. And then they finally got a young guy in an army surplus jacket. He looked like a guy in the anti-war movement here in the States in his late 20s. And I asked him, what's this Freyhead? He said, talking to you. Freely, without being afraid. He said, and she jumped in and said, the nurse said, three weeks ago, we couldn't do this. We couldn't talk in public about politics. And you were recently teaching students in Florida about the Cold War. Yeah, and I was talking about what it was like to grow up hiding under our desks when the nuns said, get under your desks, and in 15 minutes we think there'll be a flash of light if this is it, and uh, the world's going to end. And and then we used to pray every Sunday for the conversion of Russia. Mm -hmm. And it was just part of our life. We thought the world was going to end. When the people in Hungary started to... Take, to try to rebel. We all rooted for them. But we knew we couldn't help because of the nuclear weapons. Yes, it's like now. With Just Ukraine. like now. We knew we couldn't help them because of nuclear weapons. Mr. Matthews, what can we possibly do because Putin has nuclear weapons? Well, I, I don't know him, but how desperate is he and how humiliated is he now? Did you watch him on TV where he has... He's sitting at the end of a cold table. Yes. And there's like no, not a flower pot or a bottle of water. It's antiseptic. Why does he sit 20 feet from everybody? He's afraid. I mean, it's weird. And maybe it's his idea of being autocratic. I'm so powerful that no one can come near me. I, I don't know what it is. Uh, you know, he talks about uh, use of tactical nuclear weapons. A tactical nuclear weapon is an atomic explosion. I remember when I was digging up history one time, the old, uh, retired Douglas MacArthur comes to see Kennedy. He says, you know, there's all this Chinese, you know, scared us in Korea. And so we needed something to give more confidence to our soldiers. How about we give them a nuclear sidearm, like a gun in a holster, which shoots nuclear weapons? And I thought, he doesn't understand. When you shoot a nuclear weapon, you're in the cloud. <laughs> it doesn't go away from you. It doesn't like, you know, water pistol. <laughs> it doesn't go away or bullet. You're in it. You're engulfed by it. And the idea our soldiers are going to walk around blowing up nuclear weapons and exploding them. I go, is he crazy? But this guy Putin, I don't know. But I'll tell you, you talk about strategic ambiguity like we have with Taiwan. What's his ambiguity? We don't know what Putin's going to do. And I think that's why Biden... He doesn't want to trigger the guy into action. He doesn't know if he's squeezed too hard, if he's too humiliated. Um, what will he do to win in his sick way? I mean, you don't know. You just don't. And he has to be so psychologically careful about Putin. What would happen if we attacked Moscow? We have made a point, a religion really, in our country since 1947 when the Cold War started, when Russia was making its bid for Greece and Turkey and God knows how many other countries. We're not going to go to a nuclear war. You know, we did drop the bomb two of them, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I think we, Margaret Thatcher, the former prime minister of uh, Great Britain, said nuclear war has kept us from a third world war, ironically. 
Yeah, sure, mutual so. destruction. It counts on rational behavior by both sides. Nikita Khrushchev, as much a butcher he was, when it came to the crosshairs of uh, 1962, when Kennedy said, you've got to get the missiles out of Cuba, he did. And he cut the deal over Turkish missiles, and he said, we'll get out if you get those out of Turkey. I can sell this at home. Of course, he didn't sell it at home. He got booted. But he was not going to blow up the world. But Putin. I don't know about Putin. He scares me. Just because he, I don't think he's very uh, concerned with human welfare. I have a question for you. So you are a hard-hitting journalist. You ask tough questions. What is it like when they do it to you? Who does that? Well, I saw an interview where they were trying to mm, corral you into talking about past mistakes and things, and they were hard. And I just wondered, do you recognize the technique? Well, first of all, there's, there's journalists and there's other people. I think you're referring to a moment that wasn't really journalist, my hunch. Great. In fact, I'm almost positive that you're talking about something that wasn't a journalist. Great. Explain that to our listener. It's not a question of commentators versus reporters. Ah. It's a question of some people in, are in the business, but they're not journalists. You know, When I went out to sell a book, I did everything. I went on Bill Maher, who I love. I went on Steve Colbert, who's great. And I went on the Today Show, and I went on the Meet the Press show, and I went on all the MSNB shows I could get on. But you weren't necessarily being interviewed by journalists. Because there are times where I have had reporters use it on me, the silence, when they ask a hard question and then they're quiet. My technique was more to interrupt them. <laughs> just keep talking, you know. I just kept running at them. You know, I had Trump asking him about um, what do you do if a woman has an, chooses to have an abortion. And I kept pushing him because I knew he didn't know what he was talking about. He had heard the term pro, pro-life, but he, didn't, he certainly didn't come from the pro-life culture. He's transactional, let's put it that way. So I realized this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He's playing to the conservatives, but he doesn't, he's not one of them really. And he said, well, it needs to be some form of punishment. He said that, and I go, what's he talking about here? You know, the most pro-life people in the world would never say that. Certainly the Catholic pro-life people would never say it. And then, of course, two hours later, he fixed it, he corrected it. But you know what? I wish he wasn't what he is. Mm. I wish tomorrow morning or today he would get up and say, you know, a lot of this stuff I've said about the election is just dishonest, Mm. and I shouldn't be doing it. It's not good for our country. You shouldn't be doing it. You shouldn't be raising questions about our democracy. It's our treasure. And to say things about it that he knows are not true, to say he won in Pennsylvania or he won in Arizona, he didn't. There's no evidence that he did. Yeah. He is very reliably supportive of democracy if it serves him. Transactional. And and if it doesn't serve him, then he's against it. Hmm. And I liked him before he ran for president. I had done him on the show a lot. He's, he's a character. And as long as he was a character, no harm. Hmm. But when he got it, to be president of the United States and he started to go after our political system, I love democracy. I love the fact you can lose. I love concession speeches. On election night, what I look forward to is at 11 o'clock at night, I wait for the guy or the woman who lost to stand before her people and tell those people he or she let them down. I lost. It's what makes American democracy beautiful. Is it because of humility? It's because you win some, you lose some. Winston Churchill, the, probably the greatest leader of the 20th century, I counted it up once, a half dozen times he lost elections, including right after he won the war in, in World War II. Right after he won, he was beaten, kicked out of office. You got to live with it. And that's, you got to be accepting as defeat as you are a victory. You have to buy that deal or don't go into politics. Because politics means in most cases, like in baseball, you're going to lose some. You know, a great baseball team loses a third of the games. I mean, a great baseball team (laughs) loses a third of the games. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, 
you got to get used to losing. Trump won't accept it. It's funny I don't understand. I think Republicans and Democrats, I'm not, I don't think the Democrats are more educated than Republicans it's, or even more honest or more patriotic. I think that's, that's a wash. But why are they going along with Trump with his lies? That's confounding. I've got a couple of brothers who still vote for him, and I go, oh, my, my God. Family, within my family, it's the perception of wealth that they think that they can have. If he was Joe Nobody on the corner, you know, was looking for a job, they'd say, oh, what's he know? But then they see him with the beautiful wife and the beautiful kids and all the beautiful traffic, the gold tower he lives in, like out of a, you know, some sort of fantasy world. He lives there with her and he's rich. and He must know things. And he has Mar-a-Lago that looks like Versailles. Yeah. And he, he must be right. Yeah. Or he says it, then that means I'm right. What? The average guy that's driving a cab or do, working as a plumber doing a regular American job, he says, yeah, but I may be wrong, but that guy's right, so I'm right. Yeah. And, but you're right. I think you're right. You said the idea of wealth denotes intelligence. Please, please, slow down on that one. Right? <laughs> but we keep doing it. I don't know if he's going to try again or not. And I, I think if he tries again, he's going to be tough to beat him. Did you know Traverse Talks is also on YouTube? To watch full episodes with closed captions, search Northwest Public Broadcasting on YouTube and subscribe so you never miss an episode. How do we continue to be this great nation with so many gray areas when we've been told there's good and evil? Well, my, my worry is to people have the guts to run for office anymore. It's a high price, a high price of scrutiny, you know, your tax return, a lot of people are very self-conscious about that. They don't want their neighbors to know what they make a living. Mm. Uh, it, it requires a kind of a embarrassment to a lot of people to even get into public life. So that discourages some people. They may have had some peccadillas, a divorce, things in their lives. They just do not want to have dragged out before their family members. And they go, I'm not I'm going to go make money doing something else. Mm. Would Winston Churchill run for ops today or would have a talk show? I mean, I, it's so much easier to do the talk show thing. Uh, I think we're suffering from a lack of that aspiration. But I keep asking Democrats, who's on the bench? Who's coming up that you rooting for? Somebody in their 40s, 30s, who do you see as a potential president? Silence. I think there are people that I would like to see run. I like Tim Ryan in Ohio. I like uh, Sherrod Brown in Ohio. I like, uh, you know, Amy Klobuchar. I think I think Buttigieg at some point is going to try again. Uh, but it's not a big bench. There are not a lot of people that are willing to take some risks. Um, you know, I don't know. Big question marks there. Kamala Harris, big question marks. Just is she ready? Any, is anybody ready to walk into that? Biden's had a problem. He's only in the 30s right now in uh, job approval. Something's not working there. But I think uh, the three big things the Democrats are going to get kicked on. I don't want to give the Republicans their talking points. They already have them. Mm. Cost of living, that gas tank. Every time you get up to 100 bucks. Yeah. You got crime, which is real. It is not a PR issue for the Republicans. It's real. 500 homicides in Philadelphia last year. They had more homicides than New York, which is six times as large as the population. And this is true in Baltimore and places like that, Chicago. It's horrendous, and it scares people, and they don't like it. And third, the cultural questions, the border, of course, uh, you know, the, all the questions about racial history, education, uh, gender issues, all that stuff. It's a lot. It's too new for a lot of people. Just too, too new. Societal changes. It's all around people. And they Do you go, feel like it's the 60s in a way? Remember how much change well, was just... Today it's more 
amorphous. There's just so much change going on. But we have to still, with all this change, think about the Midwest white guy and not the bubbling up of the different mixed folks? It's all part of it. I'm talking about the politics and how it works, how they win. Republicans, this is going to be their big three. Since the 1940s, they've had a strategy. The American voter can only think of three things going into a voting booth. They max out mentally. So make sure all three are about your opponent and make sure all three are negative. So back in the 50s, it was communism, Korea, the war, and corruption with Truman. And then it was amnesty and acid and abortion in the 70s. What's it this year? Cost of living, crime, culture. Just watch the ads. Two years ago, the tough elections around Philadelphia, which I keep an eye on where I grew up, the Republican candidates for Congress held all their money to the last two weeks, put it all on television, all about defund the police. That's all they did. Defund the police, defund the police, defund, and they're going to do it again. You watch. Wow. What did the Democrats got to say? Well, we're trying to fight inflation, I think. We're trying to deal with the crime. Or will they even say that? And we're working on border reform, immigration reform. It's not a strong case. Why can't the Democratic Party be as united like the Republican Party seems to be? Well, because the, the people on the left want the party to become a, a left-wing party. Oh. And the people on the moderates, like me, don't, because they think that's wrong and they think it's disastrous. Isn't any extreme too much? I don't know the answer. I think a, a, a strong leader, and I think uh, you know, Bill Clinton could do it, Barack Obama could do it. Uh, it, takes, it takes real political talent mm. to lead a center-left coalition. Pelosi's fantastic, by the way. But everybody hates her. <laughs> I, I, I'm telling you, the way she kept that party together on Build Back Better, one of the stupidest names for Bill I've ever heard of, Build Back Better. What does that mean? <laughs> and she got only lost one guy up in Maine. Uh, she's kept AOC and her and the progressive yeah. of Jayapal and all. They've all been working together with her. There's never been a rift there. That takes real leadership to keep the left allied with the center left. Who are they mentoring that? I know you said you— I think it's uh, Jeffries from New York. I think he's the future. And what do they look for, for uh, somebody? I think he's—well, he's, he's African-American. He's a, he's a lawyer, and he's a smart guy, obviously. And he's a, it's very hard to say moderate because that'll kill you in the Democratic Party. You can't go like a moderate. Yeah. But I think he's, a, a, he's like Jim Clyburn. Mm -hmm. He's a solid Democrat, unhyphenated Democrat. I'm a Democrat. That's what I am. And uh, like Biden— or Pelosi. I'm a Democrat. I'm a liberal on social issues. I'm reasonably liberal on other things, but I'm not a, a crazy person. I'm certainly not a socialist. And uh, uh, I want it to work. I want to keep this party together. But what about the people? What are the goals for the people that they serve? Well, they're the ones that serve them. Tip O'Neill was a guy who spent 50 years looking out for the working class people of North Cambridge. He knew their problems, the alcoholic husband, the, the beater, whatever he had, the kids that didn't have able to go to school because of, because of challenges, uh, husbands that can't find work. He, he knew all that, people that can't have health problems they can't afford to deal with. I mean, the difference between Tip and Reagan, for example, is Reagan spent his life fighting to the top of the heap in Hollywood among well-off people. Tip spent his life looking to the needs of people who are, are not well-off. They thought Harvard was almost sort of almost like, what? That was a different world for those people. A few miles away, but that's the elite. We're not the elite. And uh, I think that's what a good congressperson does. They spend enough time listening to people's worries in real life, almost like a pastor, that they become more sympathetic. They become more—it's it's a, it's a, it's a real vocation to have people call you up knowing that they called you out of desperation. If they knew somebody had, and they had somebody with clout, they would call them. And uh, so you learn 
life, and you become more of a liberal, a good liberal. That's my kind of liberal. The ones that care, they're not doctrinal about it. They just learn through life people need help. And yet, if you're too old, we don't want to vote you into office. Well, that's a, that's a practical concern, too. I think, I don't know. I don't know how Biden does it. I don't think it'd be easy being president ever. You know who made it look fairly easy was, I think, Barack Obama. Talk about Mr. Cool. Because he kind of smiled all the time. Cool. He's Sinatra cool. <laughs> you know, it's like he didn't sweat, literally. Amazing. He was very, he was a charmer, too, but he was, the distance not the right word, light, just like uh, buoyant. Um, I mean, I think he's a, he leads a challenging life. I'm sure his relationship with Michelle is, is real. Mm. And I think it's not easy. I think it's like a, a grown-up marriage. Yeah. Marriage itself can be challenging. And we all know that. Yeah. It's challenging. Getting along with somebody else, you know. Especially for the long haul. Mm-hmm. Hey, what do you think are some misconceptions people have about politics? Oh, here's, yeah. the, here's the one they have. Okay. They think one of two things, and sometimes they think of both. One, these dodos don't even know what's going on around this. They don't think of anything. They just go to work. They collect their salary. They like being big shots. No. Most politicians, they're thinking ahead a few days. They're thinking, of, what's this week going to be like? Where am I at on this? Who's coming at me? Uh, when I met with Tip every morning, and there's two of the other, Ari Weiss and Kirk O'Donnell, we would, he would grill us like a vacuum cleaner. He would just, what do you hear? Do you hear anything? Anything in the cloakroom? Anything you see on TV? This is all implicit in this question. What do I ought to know? Anything out there? Anything special? He would grill us. He would always want us to know everything that our intelligence picked up. Who's talking against him in the cloakroom? What did somebody say on the weekend on TV? He wasn't going to watch that stuff. He survived because... In the, pretty late in his career because he was able to not he was able to play golf or play cards for the weekend. But uh, he liked the Golden Girls. That's the only thing he watched. That's <laughs> it. It's always funny. That's Tip what he liked. Tip O'Neill liked the either. Golden Girls. That's what he liked. Uh, but you know the politicians wanted. They're always wary. They're in the jungle. You know who's coming? Where are the noises? Where are the sounds? I should be hearing. Uh, but they're not long term. Some are. I have a friend who's a senator who, from the time he was a congressman, would track all the guys who came in with him. They were guys mostly. And where they're going to be on the committees they're going to, and when they're going to be chair of those committees, like 20 years. It takes about 20 years, 25. You come in in your 30s, you get to be powerful in your 60s. Generally, that's the way it works. And you have no power till you're in your 60s. So you have to, that's why people who come from safe districts eventually become powerful. Because if you can represent a district without any Republicans challenging you for 20 or 30 years, you'll eventually be chair of the you know, Ways and Means or something like that, or one of the big committees, banking or something. So... Seniority is very important to you. But he would track that. So he would have a rare case of a person who was very long-term in his thinking. And now he's a big senator. Learning so much from you. But they're not stupid. They say how hard they work. There's not one of them that wants to give up their job. Hmm. They love them. They love, they love the camaraderie. They love the important issues they talk about. They get to hang out with a bunch of other guys. And, you know, they just enjoy it. Okay, I have one more question for you because I see I see the time is running out. What do you want people to remember about you? Well, I don't think they should forget about me yet. But uh, look, nobody's ever accused me of anything but honesty. I've always been honest. Uh, that I've tried to uh, I've tried to teach, and uh, even John McLaughlin, who ran the McLaughlin Group all those years, he said, Did fundamentally, we're teachers. We're constantly trying to let people know what they ought to know, they need to know, and um, in a comic way or a graphic way or interrupting aggressive way well you know i always thought this your technique is much more refined but mine is this don't let them slow it down 
and don't let them uh, bogart it, as we used to say in the '60s. Don't bogart the thing. I give you the time, but I'm not giving you. A, I'm not unleashing your uh, your attitude. I'm going to ask you a question. If you want to answer it, fine. But you're not going to just grab the mic. Some of the big time people I say think highly of think, oh, thank you, and they start giving their speeches. In other words, they take the time away from me. You know that the viewer doesn't, or the listener doesn't want to hear that. Uh, it's not just talking points. That's a cliche. They want to just give their thing. Uh-huh. And, you know, that's not what this is about. This is about getting questions answered. I love Chuck Todd on weekends. I think he gets it. Uh, Tim Russett was great. You know, the, the pro, Barbara Walters, they came on in to get the answers. Now, 60 Minutes can cut and edit like mad, and finally they get what they want, you know. But in a live interview, uh, you got to push. you got to push. And there's a speed people are. Americans love basketball. It's fast. It's fast. That's why they love basketball. They love the fact you can turn a game around. A 10-point deficit you can turn around in three or four minutes. They love that. That's how you play interviews. You play basketball. Boom, 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 boom. I get the ball back after they score the number. I get the basket. Give me the ball. Give me the ball back. That's winners. (laughs) Interrupting. I have enjoyed our conversation so much and learned a lot from you. Thank you. And I hope our listener does too. Thank you, Mr. Matthews, for the time. That's Chris Matthews. I got a couple words in there. He was visiting WSU's Foley Institute when we grabbed him for this interview. His latest book is This Country, My Life in Politics and History. This is Traverse Talks. I'm Sue Ann Ramella. Thanks so much for listening.